Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, one of Ireland's great poets, Seamus Heaney, winner of the 1995 Nobel Prize in Literature. He died 10 years ago when he was 74. I had the privilege of interviewing Seamus Heaney twice, once before he won the Nobel, and then again some years later, not long after his 70th birthday, when he was celebrated in Ireland with specials on radio and television, a documentary film, music compositions inspired by his poetry, and a 15-CD box set of his work. But as Colm Tobin wrote, Seamus Heaney carried his fame lightly, easily. He was not merely a central figure in the literary life of Ireland, but in its emotional life, in its dream life, in its real life. He was a generous man, patient, forthcoming. When we spoke in 2010, there was a problem with the sound in the Dublin studio. His forbearance was remarkable. He read from what was to be his last book, The Human Chain. It went on to win the UK's £10,000 forward prize among his many, many honours. Seamus Heaney was born into a Catholic family in Protestant Northern Ireland. He grew up on a farm, the oldest of seven boys and two girls. When he was 11, he won a scholarship to a boarding school, St. Columns College in Derry. He went to university in Belfast and then Teachers College, publishing his first book of poetry when he was 27. In 1972, Heaney moved with his young family to a cottage in County Wicklow in the south, in the Republic of Ireland, and he lived there and in Dublin, though for many years he also taught a semester at Harvard. Heaney's poems engage with the immediacy of the natural world, its physicality. He celebrates the domestic sphere, but also with an awareness of the outside world beyond. Lines in a poem called Terminus capture some of that. When he digs, he finds an acorn and a rusted bolt. If he looks up, he sees a factory chimney and a mountain. He writes, Is it any wonder when I thought I would have second thoughts? Later, he says, two buckets were easier carried than one. I grew up in between. That in between wasn't just a political line, but reflected his posture in relation to the world. His embrace was large. Here's my conversation with Seamus Heaney from 2010. You were born at Mossbon Farm in County Derry, Northern Ireland, and, and, and you say these details are retold so often in, in introductions and bios that you, you can scarcely believe them yourself anymore. But all the same, what are your earliest memories of Mossbon Farm? Well, my earliest memory is of my foot touching the ground of Mossbon, the ground of the County Derry earth, or rather a floor laid above the earth, I was in a, a cot made by the local carpenter and the bottom of the cot consisted of slats of timber, little smooth boards laid on on a kind of ledges. And they weren't nailed down, they were you could lift them. And obviously you wanted to be able to lift them because <laughs> the children would be peeing on them or doing worse. So I remember lifting one of those or two of those boards and stepping off the floor of the cot down onto the actual smooth, cool cement floor of the house. And um, I I can remember that still. I can (laughs) feel my little foot inside my old foot here. So that's my very first memory, undoubtedly. But of course, the the house was, it was a typical uh, thatched, whitewashed, long, low country farmhouse of of that era, part of the vernacular architecture of rural Ireland. 
it faced out to the local county road, and behind it, one field away, uh, was the the railway called the London Midland and Scottish Railway, which stopped operating sometime in the late fifties, early sixties. But through the forties, the trains were running, and uh, the big noise, the big powerful noise that would come over the fields, was of an engine, steam engine shunting, shunting up at the station in Castle Dawson. I mean, I could talk about this till the cows come home. <laughs> there were there were cows at home in the byre across in the yard. There were there was a horse in the stable. The stable was under the roof with the dwelling house, and uh, one of the big comforting sounds quite often was the horse going <laughs> in the stable at the other end of the house. So it, it was belonged in an, in another world, really. Even though we had what they called a, a stove. We weren't. We didn't have uh, fire on the hearth, but we did have water from the pump, and there were wells around the place. And uh, there was a strong sense, what with thatch and uh, well water, and uh, horse-drawn uh, vehicles and horse ploughs and so on. When I look back on it, there's a strong sense that it belonged in another age, really. You were the oldest of nine children, and. I wondered if you could read your poem, uh, a, a Sofa in the Forties. Yes, A Sofa in the Forties uh, is actually, <laughs> it depends upon some knowledge of the trains. And there were a number of us, uh, there must be five or six or seven of us on the sofa playing trains at that time. Of course, as, as the years went on, I realized that the, the train was a, such a sinister, such a sinister uh, vehicle in Europe at the time with the Holocaust underway and one of the, I think one of the most terrible images of 20th century is that train pulling into Auschwitz. So you live and learn a sofa in the 40s. All of us on the sofa in a line, kneeling behind each other, eldest down to youngest, elbows going like pistons, for this was a train. And between the jam wall and the bedroom door, our speed and distance were inestimable. First we shunted, then we whistled. Then somebody collected the invisible for tickets and very gravely punched it as carriage after carriage under us moved faster. The sofa legs went giddy and the unreachable ones far out on the kitchen floor began to wave. Ghost train, death gondola, the carved curved ends black leatherette and ornate gauntness of it made it seem the sofa had achieved flotation. Its castors on tiptoe, its braid and fluent backboard gave it airs of superannuated pageantry. When visitors endured it straight-backed, when it stood off in its own remoteness, when the insufficient toys appeared on it on Christmas mornings, it held out as itself, potentially heaven-bound, earth-bound for sure among things that might add up or let you down. We entered history and ignorance under the wireless shelf. Yippee-i-yay, sang the riders of the range. Here is the news, said the absolute speaker. Between him and us a great gulf was fixed, where pronunciation reigned tyrannically. The aerial wire swept from a treetop down in through a hole bored in the window frame. When it moved in wind, the sway of language and its furtherings swept and swayed in us like nets in water, or the abstract, lonely curve of distant trains as we entered history and ignorance. We occupied our seats with all our might, fit for the uncomfortableness. Constancy was its own reward already. Out in front, on the big upholstered arm, somebody craned to the side, driver or fireman, wiping his dry brow with the air of one who had run the gauntlet. We were the last thing on his mind, it seemed. We sensed a tunnel coming up, where we'd pour through like unlit carriages through fields at night. Our only job to sit, eyes straight ahead, and be transported and make engine noise. Seamus Heaney reading A Sofa in the 40s from his collection, The Spirit Level. There's so much in there. I mean, the 
inadequate Christmas presents, the uh, resonance of history, and, and also a wonderful sense of, of play, of make-believe, uh, imagination. How much was that part of your experience as a child? Make-believe. Uh, well, I mean, cowboys and Indians, of course, Robin Hood with bows and arrows, uh, the train, that kind of thing, I think is universal for youngsters. So I think we we lived a kind of... Uh, you know, Arcadian life in one way. It, it was, you know, if you'd been living in Warsaw or London, or Birmingham, even Belfast, where they were bombed during the war, you'd have had a very different sense of, of what the world was. Uh, and maybe your make-believe would have been more defensive. But it, I, I, I often quote William Wordsworth, who says, thinking of his childhood before he went to boarding school, Fair seed time had my soul, he says, and I grew up fostered alike by beauty and by fear. And actually, any fear I had was, um, on the whole, elemental fear. Like, he, he was he was afraid in the mountains. I was scared by uh, frogs and rats and that kind of thing. Well, f- frog spawning, I remember once, which went into my first poem, Death, Death of a Naturalist. Uh, that kind of thing was uh, all over the place, the usual rural childhood anxieties. But generally, it was very secure time up to the age of 12 when I went to boarding school. What, 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 really frightened, what frightened you about frog spawning? Well, I went down into this area where, where there was a, a flax dam and they were, they were there as physical creatures with their necks pulsing, as I say in the poem, and they were croaking and there was a very kind of sinister croak, a kind of chorus of croaking, uh, and I mean it just it just was scaresome to me. And uh, I dramatised it a little bit in the poem. I said I ran away, but I certainly turned. I was afraid of them. I don't quite know what age I was. Maybe maybe five, six, seven. I don't know. But but the sense of the the gross yes <laughs> the gross <laughs> physical frogginess of them all, and the sound and the. And the stink of the flax dam at the same time, uh, that, that was another factor in, the, in the, the repellent aspect of it. The land around you comes up frequently in your poetry and, and your prose. How important is that, that physical environment when you look back on your childhood? Well, I think it, I mean, for me it was all important. Uh, my, when I think back, when uh, it's sensation, really, rather than intellection, <laughs> that returns to me. Uh, a feel for places. I mean, I think the body stores so much. I can remember holding the handles of a plough, for example, a horse plough, with my father's hands over my hands to help me guide it. And when the ploughshare would hit a a little stone in the furrow, that travelled back up the handles through the grip into your own hand like a little bleep. And uh, what, what is stored bodily is very important for memory. And I think that that uh, when things, other bodily sensations later on can bring it all back. Yeah, and I remember the, in your poem "Follower" about that that image of the horse plow, and and it's not just the land, but the tools for engaging with it are are very vivid. In, in, from your earliest poems, uh, such as a spade and digging, right up to recent ones. Yeah, that's right. I mean, my, my head is furnished, as I say, with a kind of medieval. Tools like uh, like sledgehammers and uh, and iron spikes to drive into walls and horse collars and so on uh, and I mean there's something in me that responds very physically and emotionally to them. There's something secure uh, and I've, it's as if one one has a grip on things uh, when 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 you get get my hand and tongue around those those particular objects, yeah. Your father was a, a cattle dealer. Can you tell me a bit about him? Well, he worked as a, a, a cattle dealer. His work, uh, if work is the word, is, I call it his calling really involved him going out on the road, uh, going to fairs on the whole buying things at fair, buying cattle at fairs and then bringing them back home and perhaps supplying other farmers. Or, on the other hand, he would get 
orders from farmers, uh, local farmers, and he would go to the fairs and buy at a certain rate uh, the beasts and bring them back and uh, sell them at uh, some profit or other to the farmers. So he was he was a kind of middleman between between small farmers on the land who commissioned him, as it were, and other cattle dealers who brought uh, cattle to the fairs. We're talking about a, a, a culture now that has gone completely. I mean, there are no fair days in the way there used to be when pe- local people drove the cattle into the main street of the local village and there was a big assembly, say, every first month of the first Monday of every month or the second Tuesday of every month or whatever. Now, and in my fa- the later days of my father's life, uh, all that negotiation is done at auction rings, and uh, it's it's much it's much more corporate uh, handling. The the farmers bring bring the beasts to the auction ring. They're auctioned by an auctioneer. The bids are made uh, as at an auction. What he did was find individual beasts and uh, make individual deals uh, on at the fair, and then on the farm. So. So he was a very good judge of cattle and a very good judge of the weight of cattle and uh, was much, uh, I think, uh, sought by people who who wanted decent cattle and <laughs> I suppose he was trusted also. You described him as, um, as a solid, quiet countryman with country confidence. So he, he didn't say that much. No, he was. He didn't speak that much. No, I, I've often said my father regarded speech as a kind of affectation. He <laughs> he, he, uh, he suspected the, the statement of uh, too many good intentions and good sentiments. Uh, I mean, he 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 assumed that uh, somehow that, that that intuitive transmission <laughs> of uh, quality was was the real thing. Uh, if it was overstated, uh, he tended to, I think. Uh, Shy away from it, or if not, and by overstated, by overstated, you mean stated? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, stated was over. Statement was overstatement yeah. to some extent. Yeah, that's right. When when your father died in 1986, you said the roof came off the world, and and losing a parent is is always difficult. Can you tell me what in particular that meant for you? Well, I was what age was I? Forty, forty-seven, I think. My mother died in 1984, uh, so I was what, 43 at that time. My father died a couple of years later. And I mean, I think that's just, you are next in line and you you are, there's no, nothing over your head either in, in, in terms of age, in terms of parent. And uh, it coincided in my own life with... Uh, a wonderful bout of writing a couple of three years later, in the year 88, 89, uh, a sequence of poems called, eventually called Squarings. Uh, and uh, they, were, they were terrifically free. And uh, they began with an image, an image of an unroofed uh, wallstead of an old r- ruined house and an image of uh, the soul <laughs> as a, a beggar standing in, in the doorway of this unroofed old house and I suppose that that uh, particular image of that that began to take hold of me the idea of an unroofed space and uh, the 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 creature soul body uh, down here with nothing between it and uh, the infinite uh, and all the early formation all the early imagery that I got for life and death. We got for uh, the meaning of your presence on earth and your life on earth and then your afterlife. All that uh, somehow was stirred again. Um, In particular, as I say, the image, I think that anybody in in my generation, certainly in Irish Catholic generation, they got the soul was like a little white handkerchief, unstained, you know, and... Uh, it would you would stain it with with sin and so on, but more importantly, I think was the sense that the the whole universe was governed by uh, the deity that there was a divine a divine attention being paid not just to the whole universe but to the to yourself 
Uh, you are very, you are a little like a little drop of water in this great ocean. You are a little speck in the whole scheme of things. Nevertheless, you were being uh, watched over, and watched over not only in terms of care but in terms of vigilance to see you did nothing wrong. <laughs> so, so there was this idea that when and it got this very early, and my generation got it very early, the idea that there would be two judgments at the end of your lifetime. First, at the end of your particular life, you would be whipped away and into eternity and you would undergo a, a particular judgment. Your own life would be scanned and uh, rewards or punishments or you know, atonement would be the result of that. And then again, at the end of time, there would be the general judgment and the whole thing would be ratified <laughs> on a larger scale. Anyway, anybody who undergoes that is marked by it forever, I think. And uh, no matter what uh, kind of secularization occurs, there is a, a huge coordinate established for consciousness from the beginning. That's that, that sense of the outer shimmering rim of everything uh, always being there uh, in your imagination. So I think, I, 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 I don't think that explains anything, but uh, the, the, the soul being whipped away and the roof coming off and you being exposed to that infinity... That, that occurred after the death of the parents. It, it's interesting because it, it has a, both a, um, a plus and a minus in a sense that when the roof is there, you're, you have that protection. But there is something when you say the whole infinity and the sky, there's nothing between you and the sky. There's something positive that seems to come out of that too. No, undoubtedly. I mean, I, I think there was a great sense of of, of release and uh, not that I was oppressed by parents in any domestic or filial way but uh, a sense that you were on your own now and uh, that, that was that. that that certainly flowed into life and uh, I was you know uh, at, a, at a good stage in, in my own writing I suppose also just after they died and uh, all kinds of uh, all kinds of empowerment you might say came along so so all that was important you mentioned secularization and everything but this foundation was so strong that regardless of the secularization that occurs later but were you a believer at the time I, of course i was a believer for uh, i don't know what what, whether I, what I believe <laughs> anymore but i i was uh, part of the irish catholic machinery uh, until my late teens, early twenties, definitely, uh, the matter of uh, sacraments, for example, the transubstantiation, always gave me trouble at a certain stage. But um, the the system and the the idea that uh, you could gain merit through a system of grace, and you could gain merit for other people, and that self denial had a spiritual meaning and that uh, there was virtue in self-denial and that uh, you know that uh, that there was a, a, an economy a, a supernatural economy that that is strong appeal to me and of course you know you, you dwell as John Keats says in doubts and uh, you, can, in, you can dwell you can dwell with with doubts as well as with uh, beliefs, uh, but I think that all all that was shaken. I mean, the the point, <laughs> the point of I think uh, our education when we left the church atmosphere and grew into adulthood, uh, and in the university, did uh, the the idea that was that you were between worlds again. You knew that you belonged in a Catholic, medieval, Chaucerian, Dantesque world. And at the same time, you were dwelling in a, a different world of uh, a post-Freudian, uh, post-D.H. Lawrence world. One part of you uh, had the experience of going to confession and confessing sins of impurity. The other part of you was writing essays about about D.H. Lawrence and commending the, the kind of dark gods and the sensual, uh, sensual realities of, of, of life that he uh, expressed and... Uh, you know, uh, uh, sex. <laughs> yes, basically, sex. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> sex. Sex. The whole thing was there. Could you read your poem, "A Call"? Certainly. That's that's a medieval outback to that one. 
the the well, late medieval play called Every Man is about the um, the man being called to the judgment. Uh, this is a slightly different call. Hold on, she said. I'll just run out and get him. The weather here is so good, he took the chance to do a bit of weeding. So I saw him down on his hands and knees beside the leak rig, touching, inspecting, separating one stalk from the other, gently pulling up everything not tapered, frail and leafless, pleased to feel each little weed root break, but rueful also. Then found myself listening to the amplified, grave ticking of hall clocks, where the phone lay unattended in a calm of mirror glass and sunstruck pendulums, and found myself then thinking, if it were nowadays, this is how death would summon every man. Next thing he spoke, and I nearly said I loved him. Seamus Heaney with his poem, A Call. I have to ask you, did did you ever say to your father that you loved him? I, how do you know that's my father? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't remember. I don't, I, that kind of language, again, would have been much suspect. We knew, we knew love. It wasn't a matter of, our, of declaring it. It was proven. Seamus Heaney, from, from your descriptions of home, there, there wasn't a lot of reading material at hand. When did you first become interested in poetry? Well, poetry as poetry, in, in inverted commas, I was familiar with recitation. And uh, we had little concerts at home as children too, where we recited poems we learned at school, of course. Uh, then at Christmas time, at Easter time, Elder friends of my father's and my mother's would be in, and there would be sing songs. And uh, as I came into adolescence, I would be asked to do a recitation. And I, I, I knew several uh, recitations, like Dangerous Dan Mulgrew from Robert Service, the Songs of the Yukon, Sam McGee. So I did that kind of thing. And... Uh, it was when I went to secondary school, I suppose, and began to get into English literature and poetry as a subject that something came alive in me to the language, especially by poets like John Keats, Jared uh, Manley Hopkins and so on. Into university, that conscious relish of language became stronger, but I was always shy of poetry and inverted commas. I, I didn't know quite what it was. Uh, and I think I was right to be shy of it because nobody quite knows what it is. Uh, I'm still not sure. But uh, you, I, I, I wrote some poems, as every literary undergraduate does anyway. But it, was, it wasn't until I was in my, I think, 22nd year, I would say, or 23rd year, 1962, that... Uh, I, I started in earnest. There's something started in me, and uh, it it came from reading uh, poetry of Patrick Kavanagh, an uh, Irish poet with the same kind of background as myself. Wonderful, sudden, uh, you know, burst of energy from him, and likewise from Ted Hughes, who the, he touched on subjects that I thought were known only to me, like <laughs> dead pigs uh, lying in barrows, <laughs> and. Uh, bulls in, in uh, outhouses and barns and so on. So so that was, as they say, permission. I mean, I had, uh, in, in my literary studies at Queen's University as an undergraduate, of course we had done, been lectured on contemporary poetry and I had read Eliot, I had read Auden, but they, I mean, I had also swallowed the standard line that contemporary poetry was urban, ironical, detached and... I mean, the, the intonations of Eliot I could hear as a listener, but they didn't enter me or awaken anything in me in the way these other voices did. So, so that 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 once I started in 1962, I was bitten and kept coming back for more all the time. 
Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theatre into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. Seamus Heaney, uh, you were part of a, a, a literary world in Northern Ireland for a while. There, were, uh, there was a certain poetry scene in, in, in the 60s and 70s. Then you, you went to California for a year. But when you, you came back to Northern Ireland, you then gave up teaching and moved to the South, to the Republic of Ireland. It made front page news in the Irish Times. Once you did make the move, what was this, this, how did it change how you saw the political situation? What, what effect did it have on your family to move to the I, Republic? I don't think it had very much effect in, in terms of politics or anything like that. I mean, if I had been in the North, my attitude would have been the same. I mean, uh, I, uh, I wanted the kids, really, to have the kind of childhood, I suppose. Something in me wanted, wanted them to share the feeling of growing up in behind hedges and having eye-level contact with birds' nests and leaves and flowers and so on. And there was something in myself that relished the frugality of the life in the cottage, something that belonged in my first life. So it wasn't a matter of fleeing uh, the north. We lived as as easily in, in Belfast as ever we had lived in, in the years leading up. It wasn't a matter of feeling as scared or being hunted out of the place or shaking the dust of the place off. It was very much to do with the option and the freedom and the uh, embrace of a different, making a choice and embracing something different. In a sense, it was the first, it was the first choice uh, I deliberately made. I and Mary, were, we were part of the scholarship generation. You know, we, we got the scholarship to secondary school. We got the scholarship to the university. We got the scholarship to the teaching training college. We went into teaching. We got engaged, we got the mortgage, we got the house, we got the young family, and there we were. And California was the first, uh, you know, first step off the conveyor belt. And uh, when we came back, we stepped further off it. So <laughs> that, that was a freedom. There are references to the Troubles in some of your work, but it's it's not often there as as a central focus. How do you see the responsibility of poets to the politics of their time? Well, I think that is a question that um, I kept answering between about 1969 or 70 and, I mean, uh, 1989. Uh, almost everything I've written in prose and much that's in verse is is about that uh, question. It's what, I mean, the, the poets of the 30s, 1930s in, in England uh, especially felt that. I mean, Spender, Auden and co. Louis McNeese, who was an Irish poet, of course, but a part of that, uh, that British generation. Uh, the, the Spanish Civil War, the rise of fascism and so on. They, they were lyric poets. They had private subjects. They had love, eros, sex, uh, time, childhood. And yet there was the big the big war and the, the, the need for... Uh, commitment. It was communism flowering as as, a, as an ideology. The kind of attraction of working for the wretched of the earth was deep, moral, and compelling. So, uh, what was what was the private lyric poet to do? Was he or she to just keep keep to the lyric matter of the self and uh, beauty, or? Or was was there was there a bigger obligation? I grew up with an orthodoxy. Uh, it was inculcated at the university that these poets made a mistake when they embraced anything uh, propagandist or political. I think there was a confusion, perhaps, in my mind and in the minds of some of my teachers between the propagandist and the political. Political uh, was uh, kind of inculcated as a bad word in relation to to art and poetry and so on. 
So, so that was a predisposition. But all of us hung between uh, a sense of the uh, art object or the that 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 poetry had a. Uh, no, I wasn't detached from life, but it 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 uh, it wasn't there for opinion. And our great exemplar W. B. Yeats was also ever against opinion in in verse, but he was never afraid to deliver opinion. I re- realized later on. I mean, his rhetoric and his practice were slightly at odds. So over the years, I think uh, there was a readiness. We had we had to learn how to incorporate the matter of the troubles. Bombs, killings, uh, the the actual landscape of contemporary Ulster into the stuff, in, into the kinds of things we were writing. It was a far cry from Moss Bon, if you like, where the big noise with the shunting of an engine to the explosions of car bombs rattling the windows in Belfast to Bloody Sunday, uh, to Bloody Friday, uh, both occurring in 1972, Bloody Sunday when the paratroopers shot 13 unarmed people in Derry at a civil rights march, Bloody Friday a few months later in Belfast where the IRA bombed the centre out of the city, nine people killed, scores of people injured. Uh, we, that was 1972. Uh, none of us quite had got the way of handling it. Many years later, well, six, seven, eight, nine years later, I found a way of letting some people speak in a poem called Station Island, where uh, it was a kind of dialogue between a poet protagonist and various ghosts, some of them who had been killed in the Troubles, some who had been involved in Irish uh, life in the 19th century, and indeed the shade of James Joyce, who warns against too much uh, too much side taking not 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 to be the voice of any people but to be your own voice so again i could talk about this that cows come home it was it was the matter that engaged all of us for a score of years at least and when you look back now not that you need to spend much time revisiting it in your own work but do you feel you you walked the right line and i mean it was a, a, a sometimes i think a probably a fairly difficult path to to negotiate well there's nothing that uh, I, it doesn't strikes me as uh, dishonest in anything that was written. Uh, it may not have pleased everybody one way or another, but it, it pleased me enough to be going on with. And that's the best you can do as a writer, I think, to, to, to write, write honestly and uh, honestly in terms of the subject and in terms of your attitudes and in terms of who and what you are and honestly in terms of your makings, your in terms of the art, that it is not faked up, that it belongs uh, in the in, it belongs as a true imaginative response, that it, that it isn't generated out of will, but but arises out of something more deeply lodged in yourself. So much has happened since that time, and and in more recent years for the good. Ed, how do you feel now, and how do you see the future for Northern Ireland now? Well, I think institutions are very important, but I don't see any great love-in occurring between the two communities for a good while. Uh, the main thing would be that uh, that in the new assembly, in the uh, local parliament, that the opposing sides would find a way of, you know, uh, talking at least, uh, and not bogging themselves down in ideological fury again. And I think the signs are middlingly good for that. Uh, we have moved from the atrocious to to the vigilant, small-minded <laughs> messiness of of tit for tat politics, and that that is an advance. Uh, I, I, so, so I'm I am uh, hopeful, yes, and uh, certainly certainly is a, a far better prospect now than it was. I mean, thirty, forty. 50 years ago even. Things have moved on. Things have changed. Seamus Heaney, there are so many rich images in your work. I'm wondering, how does a poem start for you? Well, almost always it starts from some memory, some something you come upon that you'd forgotten and uh, that comes up like a living gift of presence to you. Uh, Robert Frost said in his uh, introduction to his collected poems that it seems, he says, like giants 
we are always hurling experience ahead of us for the moment when we need to strike a line of purpose across it. It was a very good description of what happens in my own case. That is uh, generally the way things happen with me. The memory comes up and if we're lucky, it attaches itself, it crosses itself with some other thing. Uh, I mean, I this poem about the playing trains on the sofa in Moss Bon. It, it luckily didn't end up just a, a little recreation, nostalgic recreation of happy families on, on the sofa in uh, the 1940s. Uh, it crossed with that sense that gradually came on one as one grew, that how lucky uh, we were to be, not to be uh, living the terrible, tragic life of others in mainland Europe and in Britain. The shadow that we didn't know was there could be uh, recognised retrospectively. That is the kind of poem that really that uh, I like. I find the the stimulus in memory and the import, uh, hopefully, being more than just the content of memory. Uh, so that's... Uh, but, but without memory, I don't think I could move. Uh, Nemozny is supposed to be the, the mother of the muses, I think, and uh, I, I would have to agree to that proposition. In 1995, you won the Nobel Prize for Literature. How did that change your life? I don't think it radically changed my sense of myself or what I was about as a writer. I mean, I assumed that it was given for work that was done rather than work that I was going to do. And I've said jocosely, but in earnest to some extent, this happened to me in 1995. At that stage, I was fairly busy and fairly well exposed to the world and fairly well known and fairly well scrutinised. I mean, living through the troubles as a writer in the North, living as a someone who's part of that generation you mentioned, uh, Longley, Mahan and so on. We were under scrutiny for our work. We were under political scrutiny. We were under pressure. We were interviewed. I think uh, the, the, kind of, the kind of attention that came with the Nobel Prize wasn't any more acute or exacting than what uh, we had suffered ourselves already. So I, I don't think I'm uh, misrepresenting the truth when I say that. What is true is this, that other people see you differently uh, <laughs> once this kind of garland is hung on you. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that's another matter, but that's their... <laughs> that's their that's problem. Their problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Seamus Heaney, you, you had a stroke in, in 2006, which you say wasn't exactly a brush with death. What was it? Well, it, it was awakening up one morning in County Donegal uh, in a guest house where we'd been at a party with friends the night before and uh, not being able to get out of the bed, making moves and nothing happening. So I was paralysed on my left side. So uh, I went to hospital. I was in special care, intensive care for oh, a day and a half. And then something terrific happened. My big toe moved. <laughs> Uh, on the left foot after a couple of days and at that point I was brought to by ambulance from the north from Donegal about 120 miles down to Dublin I was in, in a general hospital there for a week and then I went to a, a wonderful rehab hospital for uh, about four weeks and uh, that that was it I mean I, 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 I learned balance learned to walk and uh, got refurbished and got Got kind of uh, tablets and and you didn't you, did, you didn't lose speech or it didn't affect no, your, I was, your mind at all. I was extremely lucky in that way. I didn't lose speech, didn't lose memory, and emerged unmarked. But it, it was uh, for a while. It it, it it was scary enough. So I I was blessed really. But it it it, it was it was a, a changing experience. All right. I mean, I I cancelled every appointment I had for readings, lectures and so on for a year and that had a, a, a good effect. I mean it made me much more cautious about accepting and uh, in, invitations and 
it made me realise how much I was on the road and how I should change my ways a bit. <laughs> so it had that good effect. You wrote a poem called Miracle. Could you read that? Happily, yes. Yeah. One of the things I realised that morning was that in the biblical story, which is in the New Testament, where the man sick of the palsy is carried in to be healed by Christ. He can't, he, they can't get him in through the crowd that has gathered around them, the healer. So they take him up to the roof, they take off the tiles and they lower the man through the roof to the feet of the of Christ. So uh, this, this is a kind of a little reminder of the importance of, of those friends, which I learned that morning. Miracle. Not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in, their shoulders numb, the ache and stoop deep locked in their backs, the stretcher handles slippery with sweat, and no let up until he's strapped on tight, made tiltable and raised to the tiled roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait for the burn of the paid-out ropes to cool, their slight light-headedness and incredulity to pass, those ones who had known him all along. Seamus Heaney reading his poem, Miracle. It's from a forthcoming book called Human Chain. Even the title Human Chain has a kind of solidarity and, and, and strength to it. Yeah, well, I was thinking of something like happened, uh, such as happened there in that poem, that the friends carrying you down when you're paralyzed. But uh, I've got grandchildren now since the last book. So I've got a couple of poems to grandchildren in it. There are poems about my inheritance as as, a, as an Irish writer. Uh, there are poems about early Irish uh, books, I mean, manuscript books. I have a, a poem in my first book called Digging. So there's all kinds of sense of continuities and uh, support systems and uh, drip feeds from different areas of experience and imagination and literature and life. So, so that, that, that's the that's in, in the in the title Human Chain. How do you think that whole experience, the 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 stroke and the and the recovery, that uh, affected how you see your writing? I'm not sure that it has. I mean, that may sound odd, but. Uh, I, it affected it for the better in that I got uh, a few poems out of it, <laughs> like Miracle. And uh, But uh, I don't want to tour my stroke, as it were. There were a couple of three necessary poems written afterwards. and uh, uh, But I think I had a strong enough sense of mortality already. There was that poem we read earlier on, A Call. Uh, and uh, there many elegy has been part of the kind of writing I've done all along. So, uh, and you don't reach the age of 70 without some sense of of uh, of the end closing in or the end coming up at any rate, you know. I have the sense that you're not just, uh, you know, in between North and South or Northern Ireland and the Republic, but even your posture as a poet is between the very immediate ground under your feet and, and then something more skyward or visionary or openness to the... the d does that sound right to you? Well, that's what... Um, the poetry helps you to, to discover yourself and the poetry in the last 20 years or so, I suppose, helped me to discover that uh, I had an attraction for... My, no my notion of myself was earthbound and I had this character, Anteos, for my maybe over-identified with early on, who is a giant born of the earth, who gets his strength from the earth, who is renewed when he is thrown to earth. Uh, and he is overcome by Hercules, who is the sky-born god, who, who realizes that the way to deal with Anteos is not to throw him onto the earth, but to raise him up out of his origin and uh, to... And that way he will lose uh, lose his source of strength. So I think in, in everyone in every one of us there is a Hercules and there's an Enteos. There's a there's a kind of critic as well as a, a dreamer. There's this, uh, an analytic intelligence as well as a kind of in capacity for entrancement. And uh, that 
that, I suppose, comes into the poetry uh, later on. And when I read this little story in, in the uh, uh, in Celtic miscellany about, about the what is the Annals of Clonmacnoise tell of a ship appearing above the monks of Clonmacnoise in the air. It's it's a early wonder tale, but it's told deadpan. Uh, the, the analyst just says uh, in this year. The monks of Clonmacnoise saw a ship in the air above them. Uh, the anchor of the ship caught in the doorway or the altar rails of the church. The ship was uh, anchored above them in the air, couldn't move. And then uh, a little uh, crewman came down the rope, shinned down the rope, to where the monks and the abbot were on the earth below him. And uh, yeah, he tries to un unloose the anchor, set it free and can't manage and the the abbot says to the monks this man here will drown down here if he if we don't help him so so they help him to un to, to, to unfasten the anchor from from the church door or the altar rails or wherever and so the boat the boat can sail on and the little man climbs back up out of the church floor or the area where he was in back back up to the marvellous, as far as the monks were concerned, up there. But he had seen something marvellous down on the floor of the church. So I thought this story discovered something for myself. It seemed to be the perfect balance. It seemed to be, it was story. It didn't need to be allegorised. It it had everything as far as I was concerned. And they, you could allegorise the little fellow as a, as a successful Orpheus who comes down, finds uh, what he needs and comes back uh, with it, with the rescu- the thing is rescued from the underworld and uh, everybody's happy everybody has a good experience the wonderful has happened down on earth the the uh, necessary has happened up in the sky and off we went so i think the poetry assists you towards new awareness and that is one of the one of the great uh, virtues of of achieving every now and again a new poem that is like a landing on a set of stairs. Whether you're going down the stairs or up the stairs, you come to the landing and it's a different level. And uh, if you're lucky, you write poems that situate you on a slightly different level. It's it's a pleasure and really it's a privilege to have a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Seamus Heaney in Dublin in 2010. He died in 2013, age 74. His last collection, Human Chain, as well as two posthumous selections, 100 Poems and New Selected Poems, 1988 to 2013, are published by Faber and Faber. This year, in addition to a new collection, The Translations of Seamus Heaney, Faber also brought out a highly praised 800-page Letters of Seamus Heaney, described as astonishing in its quality and unflagging grace. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. Technical operations by Kira Mahoney. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, to strike a celebratory note for New Year's Eve, our 20th anniversary special on stage at the Toronto International Festival of Authors with Dion Brand, Margaret Drabble, Deborah Eisenberg, and Andrew O'Hagan. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.